This is special report. Neil Armstrong may have seen extraterrestrials on the moon. When he spies a discernible shape. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. You can deny all the things I've seen, all the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Full Spectrum Universe. We have such an amazing show for you tonight. We're going to turn what you feel is mainstream history and literally turn it on its head. Uh, These two gentlemen that I have coming in are, you know, they have done such great work to you know, put forward what actually happened with man and what we are as a species. They've done, you know, so they've written books. They've now they're doing conferences online and we're going to go over all of it. But before we get into that, I just want to say to everybody that's out there, uh, July 11th, don't forget that we have our first year anniversary conference, which is going to be full spectrum universe. It's the ultimate milestone because a lot of different uh, types of podcasts, they don't make it to a year. They get a couple episodes in. Sometimes they fade out. We are hitting a year in July. So I figure we'll put together a great, great, great lineup of people all doing presentations, bringing an amazing amount of information to the people. You are thoroughly invited. It is a free event. We'll be doing it live on Facebook, live on YouTube, and it's going to be an epic, epic event for sure. So to get to it, we have Stephen and Evan Strong. And just so everybody knows that they do these conferences called Our Alien Ancestry. And they are on Chapter 10. You can go and you can go to OurAlienAncestry.net and you can sign up. It is a uh, paid event. But let me tell you, this next one coming up is going to be Stephen and Evan Strong, Omar Faison, uh, Chris Blackman, and Stephen Cummings. It's going to be Epic, 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 epic. This is what I'm talking about. This is what we need to do. You know, it's one of the things I always say for everybody is to know who you are, you have to know where you came from. And one of the things that these two gentlemen do is they rewrite where we came from. And that is ultimately what we look to do. So let's get into who we have coming on tonight. Stephen Strong is a secondary school teacher with a background in archaeology and education. He is involved in the formation of uh, formation of a graduate diploma of the uh, of Aboriginal education for the NSW Department of Education writing units on traditional law and contemporary history. He has also co-authored the highly successful Aboriginal Australia: A Language and Cultural Kit. We also have Evan Strong, and he has a background in anthropology and Indigenous culture studies, counseling and meditation, with a bachelor's degree in social sciences and a graduate studies in psychology. Evan has worked as a researcher for the Northern River Area Health Services, a social worker, a teacher's aide, and a funeral director. They have spent many of their years learning, living, and working with the, I I might butcher it, but the Bunjalagun 
language, confederation, northern river region of New South Wales, the Ramdigiri, South Australian, and the Gumalaria peoples, northwest, uh, New South Wales. They operated under the doctrine of written gin, the black fellow, white fellow dreaming, which is something we're going to get into a little bit later, in remembrance of the Cornor W. and the spokesperson for the Ramdigiri. They work with diverse informal network of independent researchers, original custodians, elders, patrons, supporters, and friends. So without further ado, let's bring them in so we can go over some of the rest of what they have in store for us this evening. Stephen and Evan Strong, how are you? Uh, we will, thank you. Happy to be here. And um, let, let us thank you for making a, making a valiant attempt yes, to try and wrap your tongue around original um, language. And I'm not criticising because it was a fine effort, wasn't it, yeah. because most people <laughs> find it difficult. It's a bit like reading Russian. But could I just rephrase those four tribal Absolutely. groups? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, <laughs> the first one was Bunjalung. Now, the next one up is Ram and Jerry, which is the mob from South Australia where my, uh, my elder Kano is from. Gamilaroi is a group inland from where we are. And, of course, the most important one of all is Wirichin, which is Blackfella, Whitefella Dreaming. But again, I've got to make the point that no American gets close to using this one. It's an unusual language because you can have combinations of letters like GL and H together. You can have three O's in one stage, and it's nearly impossible. There's a lot of double letters. Too. Oh, double letters everywhere. It's Some U's a, and yeah. a lot of R's. So, yeah, well done. Well done. Oh, that was a oh, good thank effort. you. I tried. I tried. I tried. I you know, to. so, you know, one of the things that I love is that, you know, when we talk about original people tonight, that is the mm. Aboriginal people. They are the original people. And that's yes. something that your work has. So I just wanted to let the, the audience know that. So when we say original people, they understand who we're talking about. And I yeah. make that a statement is because that's what they would like to be called, correct? Correct. In fact, you've got to remember the word Aboriginal. The word ab as a prefix is normally abhorrent, abnormal. It's a negative formation of something. The word original, which is, means comes from here first, is exactly a description of who we are. So we actually have our own names that are sort of collective names around Australia. You can be Murray, you can be Curry, you can be Noongar, but none of the original people call themselves Aboriginal. That's just a construct made by a group of people who came here 200-odd years ago and moved in and forgot to leave. But that's a different story. <laughs> One of the things that I love that uh, with your work is you talk about you know, people who do history work or they do archaeology, they want to come in and build their own narrative. But what you've done is you've taken, I, I'm not going to say word for word, but you've taken what they've given you and basically reported it. You haven't tried to put your own spin on it. And, you know, to me, that is one of the most important aspects of the work that you do, because, you know, when people come in to try and make their own narrative, things get scared. Things are not right. So fill us, uh, just fill us in on what made you decide to go this route with the original people. Uh, I never made that decision. It, it was made for of, me. It was kind of um, ended yeah. up in our laps. Um, yeah. To, no. to give you a good example of that, we were writing for the University Press of America and just doing books about archaeology and then, then spending more time in that community with the elders and the custodians. They started saying, stuff about up there um um that yeah. kind of 
ancient aliens, UFO kind of stuff, and we just looked at each other like, we're not going to talk about that. No, we had to leave them because of that and yeah. argue about that. So, look, the, the situation is this. So that, we do talk about that now, obviously. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> a lot now because we were told to. To begin with, for the first part of our research, we never mentioned aliens. We do what we're told. I was given ceremony by probably one of the most important old way elders in this country, Kano. Um, and when I was given full ceremony about oh, eight, nine years ago, it went on for a long period of time, and during that time, at the end of it, I was given the right to go and ask the elders for the information first. So it was never a conscious decision to begin with. It was a directive about how we should approach this. So what we've done is this. We're not funded by the government or university. And you've got, I'm not criticising the mob that do it this way because they've got to get money to go and do something. So they've got to make a conclusion before they go and ask the people, which is what happens. So we do it differently. <clears throat> we wait to be asked. We don't walk in anywhere because we do this old way. When you go to someone else's country, you wait at somewhere on the border and wait for someone to come and bring you in. So when someone asks us, whether it's Port Edland in West Australia or anywhere else in the country, once asked, we go then. Now, because we've gone in to country old way, and old way still exists in our country, I then have to wait for the elder to give me permission for me to look at that site, and I can give you many examples of us doing that. And the trick is when they do that, they normally give you the answer anyway. Mm. And then the job we've got to do is make up questions because the answer was given to us by the keepers of that place. Now, the problem with the universities and the governments is they're keepers of other places with other motives and um, rationale. And when they go to these sites, they already know what the history was in the past because they've got it written in a book. So when they see things there that don't fit in, well, they make up stories, they ignore it, and they do all sorts of things because it doesn't fit in, but they can't report it. And that's the situation you have with all history that's written today, mainly by the victors. We go and look at the victims, the losers, and ask for their side of the story. And what we found is that virtually everything the victors wrote about this country and I've got a feeling, and I might be wrong with this, Rob, but I've got a feeling this works for a few other countries. Most of what the victors have written is wrong. And what we've been given the opportunity was to find out the truth. And the truth, it's a bit like Winston Churchill said this, that a country can never move forward until it finds its past. Well, if that's the case, Australia's done for because virtually everything that was written about original people is wrong. So all we've been doing now... A good example of that is in Captain Cook's diary. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, very good Where point. he described, because, you know, average person, you'd say that Australian original people used bows and arrows, and they go, no, they didn't. <laughs> he actually wrote about it, seeing them walk out of the, the, the bush with bows and arrows. Yeah, that was yeah. on the day he put the flag up to claim Australia for Britain. He actually wrote that we saw a man walk down with a bundle no, of arrows and a bow. Diaries. And, it's and in his diaries, and I've actually been a teacher, and I've tried to teach that in schools, and masses of teachers have come up to me and said, what are you doing? You can't tell them lies like that. And I've been in conversations where three or four teachers bowled me up, and it was quite funny. On one occasion, one other teacher walked past and said, leave him alone, and they turned around and said, why? Because our lecturer told us about that, but then told us, after he told that, whatever you do, don't mention that in the schools. So there is an institution 
in this country of denying and lying. I don't, I'm sure it's just an Australian problem, it wouldn't be elsewhere, when it comes to the past, because it's nothing like we think. It's wild. It's wild, you know, and one of the things that I, that I love, I love is, you know, one of the things I say all the time is a man who doesn't know where he came from is a man lost. And, you know, you guys took what mainstream did and you just totally crushed it. You crushed it with, you know, uh, you know, out of, out of the, out of Australia theory. And, you know, what was that moment that, I know you were, you said you were a teacher. So what was that moment? I know you were also probably a historian at the same time. When did you make that decision? And what, what kind of turned that tide for you in that moment when you said, you know what, I'm going all in on the historian aspect of it? I think it was, um, I was teaching, I had an unusual situation. I was given a position that never happened before where I did about uh, six high schools and, and worked basically with the kids who were having issues and, then I got locked into one school and I found I was spending every moment um, day and night writing or teaching and I had, didn't have any other time and I had to make a decision about which was more important. From a financial viewpoint, I was on the top of the pole there and I was finally starting to be well paid. So leaving teaching is a really bad decision. But it came down to the fact that as we started to do this research, I realised that there was there was so many facts I mean, we've got so much archaeology that's been analysed by the best laboratories in this country that proves that everything that's been said about this country is wrong. But it was written in the history too. And the decision was, which way do you go? It's a bit like take the money or um, do the other opposite, which is have no money, but at least try and find out the truth. So it's primarily an evolving situation where I was brought we were writing books and working and then it became too difficult to do both and we had to make a decision wow you know that's a that's a big step too because you're you're walking into you know oblivion not knowing what's going to happen next but what you guys found out was completely amazing and you know yeah. I know the original people was the was the starting point of that correct is that where it started to happen for you and how did you get involved with the original people Oh, well, that part was easy because when we wrote those books, uh, those first three books, the Ram and Jerry, uh, about 3,000 k's away, I knew some of the uh, people related to that tribe and they read all our books and they called us down. So you've got to remember, it was never a conscious decision. I spent a week and a half there before they gave me ceremony and it was a proper one. And that when I did that ceremony, I then became, when you accept that ceremony, particularly one of this depth, you then become locked in. You don't have an option anymore. You've got to then basically follow what comes out of it. A ceremony is both an honour and an obligation, not, not just a welcome ceremony, but the one I was given. I had to hold objects that are rarely, if ever, seen. And it took some time before I got there to actually get that stage. So that, to me, gives us the right to go to places where elders will ring us and they will not ring or trust the government or the university. So that gives us an option and an opening that no one else has had before. Now, in the past, I'm not saying that other archaeologists didn't have that, and some did, yeah. but they were so locked into a mindset of, in the past, that white fellas were superior and black fellas, particularly ones that were run, running around naked that didn't have a bow and an arrow and didn't farm, must be the most primitive of all on the planet. And that was written into every text in Australia. 
And we got that from our archaeologists, but that's not their fault because they came out of a system that taught that, a white system that taught that the white race was greater and all other races were less. And, of course, if you didn't have a car and you didn't invent anything, that made you more or less. And the original people with stick, stone and bone, that made them the worst. So as a result of that, no one has been able to really look in and to just find the objects and been like the rocks we've been given, the sacred rocks. There's 200 of them. And people wow. from all over the country send them to us. Why don't they do it before? Because there wasn't that option. So we're lucky in that respect because we have so much archaeology and so much science that, yes, the government knows about what we've got. They contact us often, don't they, Evan? Not in a nice way. No, we have an actual <laughs> file just for threats to put me in jail from the government, formal letters, and we have five separate ones where that's the case. So, yes, the government do know about our work. They've been very conscious and aware of it. They've pulled off broadcasts we've had on national radio, haven't they? Yeah, we were second build on national news in the radio and then within... All over off. Australia. It was taken off every God. outlet in the whole of Australia. Yes, for wow. quite some time we've been involved with the government and Qantas and the Northern Territory government. All sorts of people have done things to try and block this. So it's been an ongoing thing. I mean, at the moment, to give you an idea of how ridiculous it is in this country, if we can divert, if I can, Absolutely. I'd like to show you I've got uh, some casts of some skulls we're working on, four that have been found in Australia. And I'm going to start by showing you this one here to give you an idea what we're dealing with. Here's the first one. Now, can you see it? I've done it face on for you there. And there it is that way. Now, can you notice the fact that you know where the eyebrows is? Mm -hmm. You and I have a forehead, don't we? Yeah, that seems to be a lot more uh, long. It's longer towards the back, but it's flatter at top too. There's no real like. There's, there's no the, forehead. The no. eyebrows is just the ridge itself. That's, That's it. it. If you walk down the street and you saw this person, would you call them a Homo sapien? The government has. <laughs> the government has. <laughs> Now, this is one of four we've been working on. We've got pictures of others. We've found them in sight. And what I've got to explain to you is when you look at that and you look at the fact there is no forehead, and you can see I'm holding it flat, and that's the way the face goes. This is We've got four of these in this country. Now, wow. I'll show you actually one that's been not completely made up properly, but it's part of it. Now, what this is made a makeup is between us. We've got the gentleman that used to work for the Australian Museum that did skull reconstruction, that worked on about 60 photos from a place I've been at, a burial site that has a complete intact skeleton all the way through of this being, plus eight pieces from another site and pictures of two others, and they put this together. Now, what I'm going to show you now is here is a Homo sapien. There's the back of the skull, and alongside it you're going to see this one. Now, what, wow. you, what you're going to see is this one here has got a massive skull that recedes backwards and flares out, mm -hmm. right? Now, more importantly, and I'm going to show you the eyes of these two, and you're going to see their faces now. Oh, God, how do I do this? There's one. There we go. Wow, the eyes are so much bigger. The cavities for the eyes are so much bigger. And the nose cavity is bigger as well. It goes more like a triangle. I'm trying to hold this properly for you. 
Now look at the nose cavities. There's nothing in these two. This being I'm holding up now, which has a completely different structure at the back and is so much wider, is 1,800cc and we are 1,400cc. Now what's really important is all hominids have three sutures. This has two or none. Both wow. the reconstructors noted, noticed the fact that the back, there is no back suture. Now we can right. prove this because here are, these are pieces of the skull from another one. And I'll show you what you see at the back here. When I hold it at the back here, you'll find there's no suture running down here at all or there. There's right. a crack that's running the wrong way. So what we found is that these beings that have 1,800cc brains that have no forehead, that have no sutures or two, and probably none because the marks where they put sutures are in the wrong position for all sutures of hominins. What we have are, it's very simple. Now, the question is, how do I know what this is? How are very simple again, because this is where it gets different, Rob. They will go and do mitochondrial DNA. Oh, by the way, we are allowed to keep the bones of this thing. We've got the bones of that one I showed you, the remake. We're allowed to keep it inside my our room at the moment. But what happens if I take it out the front door, Evan? Where do I go? Jail. How long? And, and Three fine. years. Three One million dollars fine. Now, if I took wow. it to a scientist to have it analysed, I would also be put in jail. But I'm allowed to keep the skulls. I'm the only person in Australia who's allowed to keep these skulls. Reason being, if it's locked in here and no one, I can take it to show nobody and no one can test it, then it lays in limbo. You see what they've done? Right. I've got five different letters threatening to put me in jail. But at the end of last year, when we did the skull reconstruction, I wrote to them and said, let's go to court and I'll hold up these skulls as my evidence. About two weeks later, the government wrote back to me and gave me official warning in the letter and said they had more than enough evidence to put me in jail and do the three years of $1 million. They've got more than enough evidence, but they've decided to give me an official warning. But in the paragraph after they made this proviso, they can rescind that at any time at their leisure. But for now, they're not going to put me in jail. But they have the evidence and they can do it. Now, the reason they're doing this is, is because that if I get the mitochondrial DNA tested and I have an, an academic in a university in Australia ready to do it now, right? Right. If we get the mitochondrial DNA tested, the whole of this story about who was on this planet falls out the window. It's okay to say there's a flying saucer up there, but I've actually got the bones of the people that were flying the saucer. Now, how do I know that, Rob? How do I know they're alien? We could get them tested, but I don't need to, do I, Evan? Mm. Because my elders, they told me what it was before I got there. Yeah, they already knew yeah. You're going to find where you're going, where it was found from, and we had no idea of any of that. Now, what happened was, as we were driving towards the, the skulls I'm showing you on the eight pieces here, this one here, right? an academic from Australia found, got these in 1953 and took it to the Australian government, and they said, it's a homo sapien, as I always did, and he rang me. He rang Evan actually first and told him, well, I've got what you've seen in the, in, the, in the burial site. Would you like to come and have a look? We didn't know he was going to give it to us. We said, definitely, we'll come and have a look. And as we're driving there, I'm 10 minutes out in Victoria. I get a phone call 
about 2,000 k's away in South Australia from one of my elders called Wirichin, which is the name of that uh, philosophy. And he says to me, you going to pick up a skull today, are you? I said, well, yeah, but I never told you about that. He said, oh, don't worry about that. This is what the spirits have told me. They told me you're going to see a skull. It's one of them. It's one of the ones who came from the sky. It's one of the – because we don't actually have gods in Australia. We call them sky heroes, Rob, okay? Right, right. They came from the sky. They're not – we call them sky heroes. Now, the first sky hero that – Christians would equate to Jesus Christ was by army, right? Mm-hmm. And then his kids came along and they landed in their spaceship and then they started to share their genes and we all joined together. <clears throat> and he said to me, the skull you're going to see is one of the children of by army. I said, whoa, where are you? I said, that's a big call, mate. I said, I don't even know what I'm looking at yet. He said, but there's more. He said it was found in a certain area of Victoria called the Wimmera region, and that's a small area within the state of Victoria, about 200 k's by 200 k's. It's got different sort of land there. I said, Wirichin, really put yourself out in the limb here, mate. I said, because I don't know where it's from, and you've picked one five-hundredth of one percent of Australia's location. That's a tough call, mate. He said, don't worry. We know this is true. Remember, you're dealing with the son of Biami which is the skull we've got in our house at the moment. So we pull up at the academic's place. We'll put down, well, I was on a mobile, and he comes out the door. When we knock on the door, he comes out, and he has this, the, the skull in his hand, the bits in his hand, and he, the first thing he said to me was, this came from the Wimmera region. So you see, mate, after you get that information from an elder telling me what I'm going to see but I haven't told him, telling me who it is and where it came from, it's not hard to do archaeology, is it? No, no. You've got most of the evidence right there in front of your face, and, and most of the story is in your head. So you could just put two and two together, and there it is. There it is. And what the archaeologists have told me, and I can tell you the top archaeologists in this country looked at that and he said, did they call that a homo sapien? I said, yeah. He said, it's not that. <laughs> now, I can tell you something else about this being. One more thing we need to understand because – I've got to make the point that aliens or well, the Pleiadians in Australia only, they've been involved in everything that's happened and they've been involved in the change that took place at a ceremony that um, is part of what we're involved in now that took place at Uluru at the end of last year. Now, what I've got, what's really important with that alien is the head looks strange and different. Agreed? Agreed. Nothing Agreed. like it anywhere. That is not the most unusual part of the body. That's what's interesting about this because I got to go to the site. By the way, it was found by a farmer. He contacted the Australian government. They said there's nothing to see here. And the next day some members from the government organisation came around and said if anyone comes to this farm and looks again, we'll come around and make trouble for you. It was threatened. Two years later, he got sick of it. And a long story cut short, I got to see the site and spent a day there. What is most interesting is, yes, I picked up the skull and said, where's the forehead? Then I looked behind and said, my God, it goes backwards forever. That wasn't the most bizarre part of the, the, the skeleton. There were bones thrown everywhere, right, because the government came and it was bent. They were buried with their arms like this and the knees up against the chest and they were facing east, right? They were right. chucked all over the place. And I picked up a femur bone. 
and I put it up against my femur bone, which is the one from the hip down to the knee, identical length. I said to myself, this one's five foot ten. Fair call. Legs gives a good idea. Then I, picked up, then I picked up the humerus bone, which is the one that goes from here to there, right? And your basketballers, the best basketballers in America might have a 32, okay? We're normally 30. Gibbons are 35, okay, to give an idea of the length. This one I picked up went all the way down to here, but there was no elbow joint, and I measured 43. Now, what was weird about it was I'm thinking, hang on for a sec, it's got legs that are 5 foot 10, and I've done the measurement on this, it's supposed to be eight foot two with that arm. And I'm thinking that doesn't make sense at all. But the weirdest thing was that bone was no thicker than one inch. Now I'm looking at the bone thinking, you got the longest arms on this planet ever of any primate, but it don't work. What are you going to put on it? The gravity we've got, the sinews and, and the muscles you could put on this, it would barely work. And then it dawned on me, I'm looking at the eyes, which are massive, as you can see. They're not for daytime running. And I'm looking at this arm and thinking, this is not for our gravity. And I'm putting together a story. My elder tells me when I'm going there, it comes. this being comes from somewhere else. And here I've got a being that's got an arm that doesn't work in our gravity and it's got a sunlight that doesn't work in the daylight, and there's no hominid that was ever made that's just running for daylight, and I'm thinking it's not for me. And wow. for me, those arms, yeah, the face looks wrong. But you throw the arms in there, and then you do a mitochondrial DNA sampling of the bones we've got, and I'm going to tell you now, you know what you're not going to get? You're not going to get the word hominid. And that's the beauty of this, the sort of work we're doing. We have, we're lucky because with this site, people rang us and asked us to come down. We knew nothing about it. So we get to see all the best science that's been sitting there and covered up, and now it's all spilled over and we seem to have most of it. So in that case, yeah, we've got film of a UFO flying over really, really when we did the ceremony, and people will say, oh, yeah, another one. But how many people can say, we got a flat-headed being that don't come from here. Yeah, not everyone has one of these. No, they don't. <laughs> and there are four right. in this country. Now, this is the important part, Rob. We found four. Two were near the Murray River. That's a riverine area. One was found on the coast, about 500 k's away. That's a coastal area. And the fourth one was found in the middle of Australia, in South Australia, in the desert. That's a desert region. Now, you've got four different beings in four different tribal arrangements. This is not a mutation. This not is at a all. Race. Not at all. It can't be. If you just have one, they could argue, and they did to begin with, oh, mutation, mutation, but not with four, okay? And with the fourth one, we had got a university and a crew already, didn't we, Evan? Fully ready. They were two days off going in to get the fourth one and doing all the analysis, and the government stepped in, an academic stepped in, and the whole thing was called off. So don't tell me the Australian government don't know about these beings, and they do. They know about them back to front. That's why I've got so many letters. I've Three of my letters are about these beings, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I have got letters for another site, but three are on this one alone. 
but they stopped when the the guy that used to do all the reconstruction for Australian Museum worked with us and created that skull. So when people say, oh, that's not a proper piece of work, that took them six months to do and they did it old way, not the new way. They did the old way of doing it, which is much more reliable, and it took us six months and that final cast, what did it cost us? 8000 wasn't it? Something like that. $8,000 to get done. So we probably, in fact, the guy that did the second part of this does the faces for Alien and Predator. Right, Hollywood for Hollywood. Things. So we didn't get two punters off the street to do this. We got two professionals <laughs> that do this for a living. So when I show you that skull, don't think, oh, no, we just made it up. No, we didn't do anything. I can tell you the government likes it because now I've got a letter saying they might sue me. So they were impressed by it. That's wild. That's why that they would even do that. You know what it is, is that they don't want people to know, you know, and that's what I, you know, what we were talking about before with them being, they, they just don't want us to know where we come from. They want us lost and divided and things like that. But this is an amazing, it's amazing what you have there. And, you know, Uluru is, is a site that, that for you guys, I know is just an immense, it's so spiritual at, at, at its foundation. I remember on December 21st of last year, we did the uh, Aluru Time to Level Up event, and I know you guys were there doing ceremonies. So tell us a little bit about what that time period meant for humanity. Well, to be honest, all of our presentations, the seven we did before Uluru and the ones we're doing now, have as its base that ceremony. Everything is based around that. Now, that, that ceremony, and I do thank you because – there were around the world, by a conservative count, 15 million people involved in that meditation. And the number I was given that we had to reach, which I never thought we'd reach, was one-tenth of that. So it was an amazing, successful event. And, look, it began for us about four years before that when an elder rung me up and spoke about the fact that the world was going to splinter into two paths, Somewhat like the Mayan prophecy of the two roads, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I wouldn't insult you by saying, do you know about it? Because you obviously do. <laughs> and they said this was going to happen. It was going to begin at Uluru. And way back at the start, I remember this guy told me it was going to happen in December the 21st. And he told me about, I heard that date for years before we gave it up. On And that was all building up towards it. And nine years of ceremonies had led towards this taking place. And they said that the world would split into two ways. And after a period of time, there would be two vibrations that are going to be coming out of this planet. And that the, as you know, the human resonance is off the, off the dial right now and has been and particularly was on the 21st, as you know, because Omar said 30 points, 30 yeah, points. Yeah. It he, was, was, he was on to that. So yep. yeah. it went like that for four hours and it was 0.3 before 7.32 and then it stayed there for four hours. Wow. There was so much evidence that came out of it. What sort of threw me a bit, Rob, is we every presentation we did, all seven of them, we said each time we weren't convinced it was going to happen for the best reasons. There were so many blocks in this and so many people trying to drop this at every level. And that leads up to the Australian government and Qantas and all. Oh, uh, Jetstar. Yeah, well, Qantas is Jetstar. Oh, right. So I'll try and remember to get to that bit because they were involved in trying to stop the ceremony too. So we were never convinced it would actually happen. 
Um, and even there was a ceremony, there was a conference that was on there at the same time. That What was it? Cosmic, Cosmic um, Consciousness. Yeah. And it was on coincidentally, and some people tried to challenge them and say you're taking money out of it, making money out of it. They had it up booked years before. Even when we gave that presentation the day before, <coughs> we said we weren't sure. So for and I appreciate that 15 million people went to meditate and wandered out into really cold situations in Iceland and other places mm. on a maybe. And you know, mate, when we were there watching this massive huge blue pool of sky above us at, at sunset thinking, what is that doing there? I still thought to myself, okay, this has happened. And every, I got a, a report from yesterday from someone who was there and she gave this amazing story of what happened to her. It did happen, but how was I going to prove it? Where was the proof? I mean, it's okay to tell everyone next time when we did a conference, which we did, look, uh, it was all good. It went sweet. We all had a great meditation and we feel better for it. And all the people there will tell you they feel better, they feel moved. And everyone's going to say, yeah, right, okay, fine, thanks, great to hear about that. Well, what does that mean to me? We never thought we'd have evidence, particularly not what we got. <laughs> and that's what we've been putting up. Um, what we've been doing now is we know that that change will take place. And that humans are going to be drawn to an either higher or lower vibration. There's going to be a time in the future when both those vibrations will be simultaneously present on this planet and each person will be locked into one of them. And then one of those vibrations, the lower one, will disappear and so will they. Now, I don't know the mechanism for that. I don't understand it. And for a long time, that was one of the reasons why I thought, no, I'm not so sure about this. But it happened. I mean, we've got film and we put this up each time and we've put it up, taken at Uluru from a different position where there is a massive flash of energy that comes out of that rock at 7.32 and no one saw it until they put the film up. That was at 7.32 at Uluru. As you mentioned, Omar sent us a readout at 7.32. The whole world's vibration increases 100-fold from 0.3 to 30 to 32, 36, and then goes back and then repeats the next day to an extent. But we've got pictures of shaft, golden shafts of light at 7.32 in Croatia coming out of what looks like a disc. It looks so much like a spaceship, it isn't funny, and going into the um, water. And we've been in contact with people in Croatia and the whole of Croatia was a buzz on the um, Facebook talking about it. It was shown in the news in Serbia and other countries, but never in Croatia, of course. And no one understood what it was. We've got film, which we've put up, that went up in Glasgow in the major paper there. And they call it the War of the Worlds, where there's lines, rays of light coming out of the clouds and into the ground or the other way around and there's just hundreds of them all different colors and they're perfect columns we've got so much information but then on top of it then we got the clincher which we really are going to talk about in our next two presentations which is the ufo one have you seen that one rob i, I haven't seen it yet i saw it was up there which you put up a couple of days ago right it was very yeah, recently right. let me describe it to you and of course what i'm going to do in the next two presentations coming up I'm going to go into that, that particular shot in more detail. But what it is, you've got to understand it was taken by somebody 
And I, we've spoken to both the people involved that took it, and they're going to be in not this one coming up, the conference, but the one after. I'm going to interview both of them. And what primarily happened was they had some weird things that happened the night before that told them something bizarre was going on with aliens, but I'm going to let them talk about that, not me. I don't want to take that part away. But then he decided for one strange reason. She was at the conference. He decided to take his kids out and just film. And, of course, if you've seen pictures of the sky, everyone just kept looking at the sky. And we spoke to the security guard there, and she said, I asked her, have you ever seen that before? She said, never. I don't know what I'm looking at. It was the most amazing because we got film of that cloud 10 minutes before and it's just grey. Man, it's got every colour in the rainbow. Then this deep pool of blue in the middle of it. Now, that pool of blue is very important because we think we know what it is. So this guy goes up. Now, he's only got one eye, right, and he films it and he just films the, the sky. He didn't see the UFO and everyone's made an issue. Why didn't he lock in on the UFO? Well, I'll tell you why, because we all looked up in the sky and none of us saw it because we just looked at the sky in totality. We weren't focusing at one thing at one time because the skies, right. I've never seen the sky fall like that before. Everybody at our conference, we had about 300 people meditating with us. That's all they could do because they had some other um, events to put on after the event, but no one yeah, wanted to do it. Like... No, no, I'm watching this. So <laughs> what happened was what you see is you see this object moving ever so slowly like that, and you see it for a while, then he goes off and he wanders off. Then he goes back down to the car park, doesn't he? Mm. And there's this woman holding up this, uh, what is that thing Phones. called? A phone, that's right, yeah. And he's, she's aiming it at it, and her eyes, her eyes, she's really dumbstruck by it, but he hasn't seen it. So he goes back and you see it a second time. And you can see it's still just crawling along like that, getting closer to that blue spot. Then he goes again, and you've got to wait. Then after he comes back on the same pan, on the same angle, it's gone. Now, people didn't pick up the most important part of it, is it was moving so slowly. One person said it was a helicopter. You, you can't hear any noise. Oh, don't worry. We checked. We got people there that checked all the readouts. The last I've got, I'm going to interview the person who was in the last helicopter that went out and it was at four o'clock. Okay, so it wasn't a helicopter. Someone else said it was a Cessna. Mind you, not just a light plane, mate, but a Cessna. Right. We, a two seater. No way. We got, we got pictures of all the air traffic. We got a hold of that that went over Northern Territory and there was one plane that was 400 k's away. It was a passenger plane going from Darwin to Melbourne, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. maybe Adelaide. Adelaide, something like that. And it was about 200 k's away in the opposite direction. So it was not a plane. We've done all the research on this. But what's interesting is when you get back the third time, it's gone. And then he just pans through the whole of the sky and you can't find it. It's disappeared. And it was just crawling along. And the last time we saw it, it would have been about, oh, probably about half a kilometre away from that hole in the sky because mm. there's a hole in the sky where it's just deep blue. But remember, it's sunset. And if you look at the sky on down near the horizon, it's a washed-out bluish grey. But up in the middle, it's the deepest blue I've ever seen in the sky ever. That object went up through that portal. It came down to watch. So what we're doing now is we're saying to people, each time we put um, – we always do new archaeology every time. We do something new each time, but we do repeat that because what we're trying to convince the people is that there's two parts to this story. Number one, 
they came. This actually happened. There were crystals put inside Uluru, and those those crystals have exploded at 7.32. We filmed it. Um, then they've gone into the earth. We graphed it through Omar, and they've charged the earth up, and it's healing itself. But humans now have to heal themselves too, and if they don't, they will leave. And if you can see all that information, you'll be more inclined to believe the fact. And we were told about this, this split, the changing into two types a long, long time ago. Do you remember Rani Minimace? Mm. She told us five years ago about the first sign will be a run on toilet papers. And everyone, we forgot about it. One person bought. Stockpiled. Stockpiled three years of toilet papers and kept them there for three and a half years and finally got sick of waiting and used them all up and finished the last roll a week before COVID started. Oh, man. Timing, she, right? Timing. Well, she's the only one who believed her. We didn't believe her. We just saw all that shit. First sign of the change of everything is a run on toilet paper. Now, how many people would predict that? But that's her prediction. And by the way, her last prediction, the final sign when the change is about to come, remember that one? Mm -hmm. It's the birds. Birds behaving weirdly. She said, that's the one. When that's happening, get ready. The change is beginning. Now, I've got to make the point about this change that we're talking about because we've heard about it many times before, but the original people have never invested in any of this. I can tell you two things that might convince people there is actually a change. For the first time ever in Australia, at 10 o'clock on the 21st of December, for reasons no one can explain, the whole rock was closed that day and the next day and no one was allowed there and they chased out all the people were there. Yeah, I never got there. He wow. never got to the rock. They closed it for two days. Never happened before because the elders came to do a ceremony and they didn't want anyone there. Now, you might think, oh, that's a maybe. Now, let me give you the second piece of information that makes it a definite, that not only did they know about it, that everyone in the world knew about what was taking place in the higher levels because we were going to do a ceremony with about 350 people, very close to Uluru, while they did those, because everyone was doing all around the world. We were doing ours, and I took some sacred rocks along, about 70 to work with, which made it a very strong ceremony. Now, we're here we are, and on that day, the day before, at the conference where these people were going to do this ceremony, the manager of not the conference but the whole resort, Yulara came in and took the mic and was given the mic and had to read out statements by the Northern Territory Government and Jetstar, which is the domestic line for Qantas. And this is what they told everyone, that they were going to come tomorrow with a large group of police and testing for COVID and that everyone from Sydney, which made up about one-third of all the people there, will be locked down uh, they're going to have a choice as to whether they want to stay at Yalara for two weeks and lock down there, which will cost about $10,000 because it's bloody expensive, or get on the last Jetstar flight, 8 o'clock in the morning, and go back to Sydney to quarantine. The police will be coming tomorrow from Alice Springs, all of them. They were going to come in, and everyone from Sydney, because what had happened is there had been a COVID outbreak in Australia. Two people caught it in the northern beaches in Sydney. That's the whole of Australia, right? right? And they locked down the northern beaches. And about 20 people from the northern beaches didn't come to the conference, but the rest did, and they were allowed yeah. to come. Including the MC of the conference. Yes, they all came from Sydney. 
So what then happened was they were told that. And then what happened that night, they were told they couldn't go to any restaurants. And we went to a takeaway restaurant which says, if you come from Sydney, ring and we'll develop and we'll leave it at the door and you pay, we will not open the door. And we had friends who were there and they were getting migraines because they said, what am I going to do? One woman came up to me and said, my two children have been minded. If I stay here, I won't have Christmas with them. What should I do? I said, get on the plane. Yeah. Now, a lot didn't, but 50 did, right? And in the morning, the 50, the other 100 odd people from Sydney got up in the morning and they went and had breakfast. They weren't locked down anymore. The police came, two of them. Yeah, they were doing this. Sat there all day, didn't go to anybody, didn't go near a soul. Underneath a tree. They brought a van along and somebody, not from us, from somewhere else felt sick. They went across and used the van to find out if they had COVID. And they came back later, they didn't. That was the only testing done. Um, All of the people from Sydney were not locked down anymore. And then Jetstar put up a new declaration and said oh we made a mistake we said yesterday one flight and that's it we're closed down and it would be empty we've now decided to resume flights as normal all the people from sydney when they left they got onto airports they weren't tested and they went home and they were fine now jetstar changed their story and the government said the police were coming the next day well they didn't lie they said 40 well it's nearly 40 it was two and they never knocked on anyone's door and all of that people that night could not dine anywhere and the next morning they could dine where they wanted. So, ladies and gentlemen, when we make out this outlandish claim that the world's divided into two camps, oh, shit, look out the front door right now. How are things going out there? Mm. You'll find, yeah. Absolutely. Well, no, there's somebody's just asked, is this change related to the pole shift? And Evan just pointed that out. I've got to make the point here. I should make this now. The Pleiadians left crystals inside Uluru, and when they were charged, they will re- rebalance this planet. There will be no tsunami. There will be no magnetic shift. None of that's going to take place anymore because I can tell you, we know the keeper of the story if this didn't work, an elder. And he was all about the pole shift and the water coming around the whole thing because that's what was going to happen. The deal was this. If we didn't heal ourselves on that day, the planet was going to heal itself anyway. Now, I know the poles have shifted and they're nearly in Siberia at the moment. That will start to slow up and it will balance out again. This was us. This was the last chance humans had to clean this planet before it cleaned itself. But you've got to remember something. If we didn't do this properly, if it cleaned itself, all the animals would have been killed and they don't deserve it because all of the animals on this planet bar one species lives by nature's law. There's one species that doesn't, and they're the ones who have to learn. If they don't live by nature's law, they will be asked to leave. And that's what this is about. Now, when the Hoppy speak, we've put up this prophecy by the Hoppy about the fast-flowing river, where the elder said, (coughs) we've spoken at the 11th hour, the 12th hour has come. Go back to your village and he lists all the things you should do, check your water and stuff like that. Then he tells you to jump into this fast-flowing river. And he said, many will hang on to the shoreline. They won't jump in. Go in, because if you don't, you're, you're finished. They're all, all of the indigenous prophecies spoke of this time of change when there'd be a choice. Well, what we have today with COVID, I bless it. 
I know that sounds bizarre. I understand it causes untold grief and drama and all these things, and it's horrible. But what it's done is it's showing people there's a choice to be made about which way you walk. If you want to walk and follow and obey, that will not be acceptable. And this change you've got to make, and he made this very clear in the Hopi prophecy, it says we are the ones we are waiting for. What that means is you yourself, and he says you go onto that river and jump in yourself. Each person has to make a decision, and the decision is clear. Do you believe in nature? Do you want to follow nature? And if you follow nature, then all of those things come into play. And if you want to obey the group that have made this mess we have today, then other factors come into place. So that's what this is all about. We believe, from an Indigenous viewpoint, and you ask the Hopi and they knew it, and I will tell you the change begins in Australia. That's a very clear call. Well, it did begin, and it has begun, and I've noticed that now one of the things I'm seeing now is the people who don't take the COVID virus are now going to be regarded somewhat like lepers or somewhat like the Nazis did when they put tattoos on the Jews, where if you don't carry a card, you are going to be banned from certain entertainment venues and restaurants and oh. pubs and, and travelling, and you become a leper of sorts. And what's happening is that the world is being divided into two paths and irrespective, I mean, I don't care whether you take the virus, the, the thing or not, that's not going to make any difference. It's a, it's a statement about where you are in relation to what's happening because they right. tell us now that this will happen forever. You've got to understand that. This will be continual. And what they will do is they'll keep making new strands of this virus. They'll come around, and whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. You see, it doesn't matter because it exists in the media. It exists in the masses out there anyway. So it does exist even if people say it's not there. It does exist in every other form, so it doesn't matter anymore. And they're using it to take away every right you've got, and they'll continue doing that because that's the future they're offering you. And what you've got to say to yourself is that the other future on offer is all based on faith. We still can't prove it. We can give you a lot of circumstantial evidence. We've got lots of that. But in the long run, it comes down to a leap of faith, which is what 15 million people did in meditating and sending all their energy to an inanimate, non-moving, non-breathing, non-eating piece of rock, hoping somehow or another that, that that rock will save them and save the, the planet. It's a ridiculous scientific notion that happens to be true. Well, <laughs> I think it's true. And, you know, when we did that, that watch, we watched the ceremonies that you guys did on the 21st when we were doing our our small, you know, gathering and getting together on a kind of conference level. And I could actually feel the energy that was coming from that, that, that video itself. It was, it's not like I was anywhere remotely close to it and I could still feel it. And that to me is a surefire sign that we were on the right path at that moment. And I told Omar that, you know, I said, I felt that it was like a humming in my whole body. It was wild. It was wild. Why? Well, Evan's different because Evan was actually at the site and he and some of the other people, what was your experience, Evan? You actually felt it properly, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, because I was just lucky enough. Well, there's no grass out there, but we're on a like a sporting grounds and I, I was lucky enough to have a dirt patch in front of where I was sitting. 
So I had this compulsion to just put my hands in the earth. So I went, oh, well, I'll do that. So I had my hands down like this, and then after about 30 seconds, they started to shake physically enough for the people sitting next to me going, what's going on with your hands? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just feeling this pulsing coming through the earth, and the more I concentrated on it, the stronger it got. I could feel the energy surging um, in the ground. It's and connect, I was gonna, connected back to the mother, you know, that's connecting yeah, back. It's wild. Exactly. That's what was happening. And I was actually the one that was sort of running that whole thing. And I saw other people have their hands there and then put them, take them off the ground. So I, and I found out from others too, quite a few people could feel the vibration in the earth. And of course, as you know, Arma proved to us, yes, it was vibrating. And we were actually, and that's the really important part of this, Rob, that I think does resonate. If you want proof, the proof is that at that particular moment when 15 million people sent, covered the earth in positive vibration, positive energy, it actually worked. That's the point. I mean, you've got pictures of the rock blowing up with energy. You've got pictures of a spaceship. We have quite a few people saying there were spirits standing all the way around watching this. We heard that from quite a few people. And so many people had different reactions. I remember, and what about the... the the cow one. Oh, yeah, the cow Yeah, the cow one's a good one. This is a story from Tasmania, which is a place that rains basically all the time is really cold. Sorry, Tasmania. Beautiful place. <laughs> Crappy weather. Anyway, this woman went out and meditated. Now, it's not a big one. It was on her own. She went out into the, the, uh, the bush somewhere. And her story is this, that as she began to meditate, a cow wandered out of the bush, never seen it before, stood alongside her, and at 7.32, started to cry. Now, wow. you might say she made it up, but when you say that, could you remember we've got, and we'll put on presentations, well, we'll show you 10 photographs of 7.32 around the world, and when you put it in context next to all those things and you know something was happening, then why can't the animals feel it? And, God, we've got, we got lots of dogs and cat stories, but there's a difference. A dog and a cat could be empathising with its trainer, right, and then pick up its emotion. But a random cow that never met this woman before, there is no reason for the cow to sort of bond and say, oh, you're feeling something, I'll go with it. No reason whatsoever because after that was finished, the cow just walked away again. That was the end of it. So what I'm getting at is we can present a thousand different ways, and you said the same thing, Rob, quite a few people a long way away, had amazing experiences at that time. What do you do with that? Do you ignore it or do you take it in? I take it in. Are you kidding me? That, yeah. that to me means I think we actually made a tremendous difference on that day. And you're right. It sort of ushered in this, this, this it feels like a new kind of era where we're getting back to our, to our you know, our, we're getting back to our, our vibrations are high are getting higher by self-work and and ex exclusively working on ourselves to raise our vibrations in that moment and i can feel it in the people around me and the mm -hmm. company that i keep and i think it's an amazing thing it's an amazing thing i think you're right and i think it's very important I, one of the things we decided is after we did that um those seven presentations we stopped for a couple of months and wondered, well, what are we going to do and it became obvious what we had to do and it's exactly what you said there will be millions. I'm not sure we're going to get to a billion, to be honest. I think that's how dramatic this is going to be. 
But the question you've got to ask is what structure do we embrace and how do we live? Because I personally, I don't know about you, mate, but I'm not real keen on wandering through the bush and living outside all the time without a house and I like Mysterio and I want to listen to music. So I still want to live this way. I'm not saying some people say go bush. I'm saying I'm the first one to say that, not me. I'm not doing that. (laughs) So my question is, this is what we're doing now. We're still doing archaeology and proof, lots of proof like I'm talking about now, and we do that as well. But we also do a new strand, which is the what comes next part, which is what sort of education system do you want for the kids of the future? Do you want the same one they've got now? No. Where they're taught lies. And... Where they're taught no. to pass tests and they're taught to memorise what someone told them is the truth. And the more you memorise it and the better you are at it, the higher the mark you get is and you get a better job. And one day you might get to run the world too. Is that the sort of education you want? I remember when I was a teacher to begin with about 40 years ago, when I first started, my job was to make the kids ask questions. I watched that die as each year each kid was being tested through the whole of the state where it's become your job is to make sure they know the answer. So let's give that up. Let's look at another area. We have chemo companies, bless them. Do we want them in the future? Absolutely not. We're going to have to learn to find out all our medicine from where? From the earth. Right. Well, we, get, we get people in. Our next one, we've got a person in, one of the best experts on all different medicines and stuff that grows from the earth. So what's our new chemo company going to be? It's going to be the, a farm where things are grown that we will use when we're ill. And now a lot of our illness is going to disappear when the place gets balanced anyway. But humans, we're all bound to die and our body falls apart. So we need medicine. So we look at that. So what we're trying to do now is each one of these is we're looking, I'm asking the people who talk to think upon this the next three months as a curriculum. And I want you to think about this has got to go to high school and primary school and secondary school further on. What are the sorts of things your kids should learn in the future? So we're chasing up people now that are experts in things in the future that would work and bringing them on to explain how they would go about doing that. So, yes, we've got two people on next time. One, Chris Blackmore, is going to talk about the chemo company of the future, which has always got no walls because it's got to have sun, hasn't it, to grow things. That's it. And then we've got another person who's going to talk about the fact that we're going to talk about language in a different way. There was a first language around the world and we all spoke there spoke the same language there was no warfare because we trusted each other and we could talk to each other when language is splintered so did we mm-hmm. well we've got a person in that uh, worked with a person that i knew personally evan and i both met him and he proved that magyar and original magyar being the ancient hungarian tongue and and original australian tongues were the first tongues on the planet And everyone spoke that language. And the reason he did this was he came here from Hungary after the war in 1953 and was working in the Snowy Mountains. And because he had a degree and stuff, he was the boss of a group of Hungarians. And one day, Darkingong elders were working there too, and they started talking their language. And the Hungarians spoke to them for the next hour, and they understood everything they said. And he realised then in 1953, the rest of his life, he had to prove, well, this guy's got all these papers. And I said, okay, kids need to know that. Show me how that could become a lesson too. 
So that's what we're looking at doing. So we're going to continue proving we're fixing up the past. And one of the things I'm going to be talking about soon is the fact I've got three objects that all have chemical analysis that proves they've got alien metal in them. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to hold up one now, this one here. It's a piece of – it's an object that was found near the carry-on glyphs by Arnie Minimace along with a bone, which we've had analysed, and it's an ancient bone, human bone. And that particular object was analysed by the best laboratory in this country from Southern Cross Uni. And he came back and told me, we've never had something like this before. 24% of it can't be identified, not on this planet. It's not in the periodic table. It makes up one quarter of this and makes it a completely different metal. The rest of it's aluminium, but we had to use a tungsten tip drill to cut the damn thing. We couldn't get in any other way. And he said, we don't know what it is, but it's not from here. Now, we've got three objects like that. And those things are part of that same story. And, of course, what we do in our presentation, we get the hard job, we get the empirical part, and we let the others do the mystical part of the story. Because our job is to prove to people, A, aliens were here, and we can prove it because we've got all this different information that's been found in Australia, and B, more importantly, why they came. And they came for one thing, December the 21st at Uluru. That's why they've been here for millions of years, for tens of thousands of years, for this event, because this event that takes place in, on this planet does not stop here. It creates a whipple, ripple effect that will go throughout the cosmos. That is why they've invested their time and energy here. And that is why that, that UFO, instead of shooting through the sky at 1,000 miles an hour, was doing what, 50 50 Ks. And by the way, Cessna, for that person who said that, Cessnas cannot hover at the speed you're going to see that UFO. They fall out of the ground. It's called a crash. But we won't <laughs> go down that path because we proved they weren't there anyway. But right. was, it was watching this. That's all it was doing, man. It was watching the whole thing. And when it went, came down through that portal, and once it knew it was successful, they probably went up there and had a huge party. They've been here for so friggin' long hoping we get this right. And even down to the 20th of December, they weren't sure and nor were we. And it's people like yourself, Rob, and the 15 million people that pulled this off. And I told the people at Uluru this, but it relates to everybody there. I said the time will come when you'll sit down and tell your grandchildren, I did this, I'm responsible for this, if me and my mates, well, 15 million of them, if we didn't do this, if we didn't believe in something that we couldn't even fully believe in because it was never given that way, but we decided to go out with just faith alone and do something to change this planet, then I'm responsible for it. You've got every right to say that. And for those of you that didn't come along and feel a little bit miffed by the fact you didn't get involved in it, you probably didn't know about it, but it didn't matter. We only needed a certain number, and we got that up 10 times over. That's not the important part. The important part is who joins us over the next, well, couple of years. Well, I can tell you that. I'm not allowed to say when, when this is supposed to come to fruition, but it's, not, it's far less than a decade. And that is why we made a commitment to continue with these online conferences until it's over. There will come a time. We know that the 
human residence can run at 0.3 and we know it can run at 70, 80, it can run even higher. There's going to come a time very soon where they both become present and you don't have a choice. You go where your soul takes you. And if your soul isn't committed at that particular moment in time, it doesn't matter. That's all we can say about that and it's not far away. But in the meantime, all we can do is keep saying the same thing. If you really think what they're offering you at the moment is good enough, invest in it. If you think it isn't, then there's a chance we could be wrong. There's a bloody big chance we're going to be wrong about the ceremony, but we weren't wrong about that. There was a huge chance I'd have nothing after to prove that it was actually happened, but I was wrong about that too. So, so far, twice I've had doubts and I've been wrong so far, and there's something about the third time proves it, and the third one will be this. I have huge issues with two resonances and then five, six of the planet disappearing. have a real issue about how that happens. Had the same issue about the first two, and they happened, and neither of them fitted into any scientific model I've got or we've got on this planet. But I suppose we've got to remember one thing. The reason why this planet is different from all the other planets and the reason why they came is because it's full of one thing or two things that they're all interested in. And they go together. It's love and magic. And this planet will start exuding both. And you were also talking about the fact that you had that sensation with people you've met that had more of that love, which is pouring out of the plant. But don't forget, <coughs> with the proper love comes all the magic, all the things like Kano in front of Graham Hancock disappearing or ringing us up and telling us what we did wrong from 3,000 k's away after he was talking to the animals. All of those so-called magical miracle things that happened in the past and all spoken about, we've been told don't happen, they come back too. But they don't come back to prove to people to join us. They come back after the change. If they came back before the change and everyone saw people doing this, they think, oh, shit, they're right, I better join them. Mm -hmm. Can't be like that. It always, to the very finish, it has to be a leap of faith. I do remember at the time everyone said there'd be a UFO there. And I kept saying, shit, I hope not. Oh, man, I don't want a massive mothership landing on Uluru and 5,000 people seeing it. I didn't want that because right. it'd be obvious. So what did we get? One guy with one good eye <laughs> basically <laughs> filming the sky and every now and then as he goes racing past there, you see that UFO again. That is the only UFO uh, clip I've ever seen where people are not trying to catch the UFO. So we got virtually the opposite of everything that I could have got, but we still got a UFO. But what's involved in that, you can look at the thing. We're going to put it up on our um, next conference and we'll talk about a lot more details, some research we've done and the one after. It's the only thing we repeat. But when you look at that, yeah, there's a chance it could be Photoshopped. Well, in the not the not this one, but the next one, the June one, we're going to do two things. We're going to do about a half-hour interview with those people and we're going to pick three or four pictures from the uh, questions from the side to ask them. So you get a chance to meet the people, A, that had some amazing experiences the night before that obviously meant this was going to happen. This was chosen by the UFO mob. They did this to these people. And you'll find out about that, but I'm not giving that up. 
we have to keep something for the conference for all of the course, of course. course. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the lead up, but that in, that won't be this one coming up. But come to this one anyway; it'll still be good. But the one after, you'll meet the people, the, what, the person who filmed it, and what happened the night before. And if you don't believe that, we can't give you much more. There's more empirical than that. I mean, we're going to give you. We're going to start reading out testimonials from people. I got one that came yesterday, Evan. Oh, okay. I haven't even seen that one yet. Oh, and that's so. a brilliant one. We're going to start reading them out. But after we put up all that proof, then the testimonials become stronger because then the doubt's gone. And all we're going to try and do is keep people aware of the fact that if they don't lock themselves into this, all they've got is that. Right. I don't want that anymore. I've looked outside the window, and every day. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. Well, it's probably going to get that to that point, and then we'll see it get better. But I yes. myself would rather be on that, you know, the higher frequency side as opposed to what's going on outside the window too. So we coincide a lot with that. And maybe what we need to do also is to implement a little bit of the original people's dream time aspect and lifestyles into ourselves to, to really – become one with the planet again spiritually physically and take care of it and take care of ourselves it is a implementation of a lifestyle that we need to move forward with and if you don't know what dream time is it's the original people's almost like a religion but it's not it's like it's like a lifestyle it really goes through aspects of of, of daily routines and life so i mean it's really an amazing thing and i know i know you guys are so versed in that i actually got it from you guys and i listened to it and i was like let me check this out but it was it's incredible it's incredible that's the really important part but i can assure you that the dreaming we speak of which is primarily a belief that the spirits are everywhere and you are basically on show remember what shakespeare said he was right the world is a stage you just mm -hmm. he was right you got it right exactly that's exactly right. But I can tell you now, if you were to sit with the Hoppy or the Cherokee, you would find the dreaming with them too. All the indigenous people, and I include the Celts too, the Druids, they are all practitioners of the dreaming. The dreaming, remember, it's not a book. It's, it's not a philosophy. It's not seven steps to it. it is, it's a concept where you accept the fact that the planet is magic, the spirits watch everything you do, and you are accountable for everything you do, and then it becomes easy. It really does become that easy. And then if you want, yeah, we've got some wonderful ceremonies. But, you know, you know, the best philosophers of the dreaming, and I'm going to be very open about this, we say this all the time, are your American Indians, Chief Seattle, and some of the stuff they've said where they've summed up a book in a paragraph or a sentence is outrageously brilliant. You can find all the wisdom you want because remember the American original original people, the American Amerindian people, and the original people are the closest cousins to each other. We are closer to them to other other any other group because our people lived there for a long period of time before the second wave came. But they came through invitation, and we inbred with them, and we shared the stories, and they have those stories. And you'll find of all the indigenous people on the planet. The ones who live the closest living to the dreaming are the American Indian people. So you Americans are fine. You don't have to come to Australia. You can't at the moment. We don't let anyone in. We lock the world out. <laughs> but what we said to the rest of the world very simply is piss off and we don't want you. Right, right. I'm actually starting a presentation uh, that I'm going to be doing at the Watchers Talk 7th anniversary, which is 
It's a Native American collaboration of right. myths, giants, and, and heroes. So yeah. we're going to go through a lot of the different cultures and how they coincide to even back to the original peoples and some of the same aspects that they yeah. coincide with each other so much. So a lot of that research is going to be piggybacked off what you guys have already put out there for people to digest because, of course, I'm not privy to the elders myself. So I'll go to the next best thing, which is you guys, you know. Well, it's the same story. Look, all the, the differences were in a different setting to you. But look, you got a Dr. Artie Sixkiller-Clark, who's a professor, I think, at Montana University, and she writes about the moon people. And you find the moon people, when the Cherokee got there, they were farming the place, coming out at night and couldn't come out in the day because they had these massive eyes, the same mob I just showed you. Mm-hmm. And you talk to your mob up there, and I'll talk about the Pleiadians. And I've heard some Indians tell me they used to play with them when they were kids. They used to come down then. It's really so different. It's not funny. I mean, it's no difference between there. And, look, then if you go to other places, the differences are more, are greater, but not great, just slightly greater, but not. But it's all the same story. If you want to come back to it, humans have been living two lifestyles for such a long time, sedentary and nomadic. And then sedentary won about 6,000 years ago. But before that, for a long period of time, everyone was living in the dreaming. And we were doing magic all the time. And we had earlier civilizations like Atlantis and Lemuria. And why did they fall? Because the sedentary one never for, always falls. But the nomadic one continues all the way through because one lives with nature and one fights nature. Right. So the, this has always been humanity as, as ebbed and flowed between this before. Don't think this is the highest civilization we've ever got. Oh, for God's sake, it's not. And not even technologically. It's not even close. Nope. Not even we close. go up and down. No, we go up and down, and every time we make the same friggin' mistakes again. And I don't know why people want to find Atlantis. I mean, all you've got there is just a bulge up that got so bad in the finish, they destroyed themselves. And we're trying to find them right now. You don't have to. We're looking at it, we're doing the same thing again. So that's not our heart. But don't forget, while there was Atlantis, there was Lemuria. And Lemuria lived a completely different lifestyle. They live with nature. So this has been an ongoing thing with humanity. We've ebbed and flowed between the two. But what's going to happen now is for a period of time, not forever, we will become aware and the people who aren't aware leave. Now, there's no guarantee about whether that continues forever. In fact, I don't think it does. I, what I've been told is this is a reset because this planet was also always supposed to be an even keel between good and evil. Evil is completely running the whole thing and good has no chance to do anything. That's right. why this happened. This is why the Pleiadians left that behind so long ago. That was the whole purpose behind this. It was an escape clause, a get-out-of-jail clause, if you want. The problem is it was a get-out-of-jail clause for those that get out of jail, but the ones who don't, oh, look, I want to make a point here. Can I make this very clear? The ones that don't, Let's make this very clear. There must be one of those people who was next in line. Do you know what I mean? Wherever the, right. the line is drawn, somebody just missed out by one word, one deed, one thought. I don't want people to think, oh, they're all getting sent to hell. That's not how this works. Nobody gets sent like that. That's not what happens. You've got to remember the mob that go include Bill Gates, Suros, and somebody that was next in line. Why would they all get the same punishment? Because old mate that was next in line is only one breath away from the last one here. Right. So what this is about is nothing gets wiped out. They incarnate on planets 
that run at the lowest human resonance, like we've had all the way along. And you know what they are? They're probably one good deed away, next life, from coming back here. So this is not, I want to make this clear. It's like people think families have been split apart and stuff, because they will be, but not forever. That's the point with this. Everyone here was here for a reason. Just a lot of us couldn't get it right. And this is the cutoff point. And they lowered the bar, by the way, before to incarnate and not come back. The bar was up here. This time it's actually you can step over the bloody thing. You don't even have to run. But you've got to walk in the right direction. And that's the trick with this. So those that miss out could be one lifetime away from coming back and incarnating in a baby. But when it comes to others, and we can use Bill Gates because that's a lady I must say. Right. It's going to take a bit of work there, I can tell you. That right. might be so easy. But nobody's beyond redemption. You that's can why all make it back. Yes, that's why I made that point. I don't want anyone to think. That's why I included Bill for that reason. I didn't say never. Mm -hmm. I never said never. I'm not going to judge this guy. He's made some mistakes this time for sure. We all know that. And there's a lot to make up for because the mistakes have been monumental in their impact. But I never said never. I never said that. What I said was more lifetimes, but old mate that just missed out by one breath, one lifetime's enough for you. You can come back. You are nearly there. And every person that we're talking about knows people who are sitting on the fence. Of and course. The best, They're the ones you've got to go to. I mean, there are some people that are so far off the fence that you, you're wasting your time. You could throw the seeds, but nothing's going to happen. But with seed dreaming, you just throw the seeds everywhere and sometimes it catches. And that's the job, to get that's people to look at this, to find out there is a truth here. You know, that, that's great, too, because and it's funny because I feel like a, like the resonant field around me now is those people who are almost on the same level as me. But then there's the, from those people out is mm -hmm. that 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 crescent where we have to bring those people in and, and start to help them, too. And I think that that is the pay it forward method as well. And really try and go out of your way to help those who may not be privy to the same information as you to give them that information because that information eventually brings them to the, it, it like clicks in their head where they get to come back and start working their own way through the material. And once they do that, they find their own path to that enlightened intellectual state that they need to be in to, to, to have this happen. That's why we're here. That's all we're here for, to be honest, mate. You've got that right in a hundred times over, Rob. That's the whole point of this exercise if you are believing this and you've got friends, relations who don't, you're obliged to try. I, I do make a rule about this and I, I would make this recommendation. If you give it your best shot once, don't come back and nag a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time because it won't work. You throw the seeds out once. You can't keep going back to people because it's a bit like those calls you get from people saying they want to get inside your computer or something else and they ring you up. You, don't, you try it once. You try it once. And if it doesn't work, it's not going to work. I remember when I was at a conference recently, someone said something to me like that at the end of the conference. They grabbed a group of people to be questioned. And someone said, well, you know, I believe in this, but my family doesn't. What can I do to make them understand it? And I said, nothing. There's nothing you can do now to make anyone do anything. It's past that now. I said, all you can do is throw the seeds out and hope that they germinate. It may take a day, it may take a week, it may take a month, and it may take never. 
You can't do more than that. Even if they're people that you've incarnated with for so many times, I make the point and I'll make it again. It means if they don't get it right, they go somewhere else for a period of time and maybe during that period of time they'll get it right, eventually they'll come back. That's the deal. So no one's kicked off this planet. But some people think, oh, that's unfair. Well, if you're incarnate and you've been here forever, well, think about like a rock does. When a rock's been in a place for a 1,000 years, what's that? One second. That's how they see it. <laughs> they mm -hmm. just sit in one place for a long period of time and do nothing. Think about it. Rocks have a really tough time, don't they? They don't do anything. <laughs> they just sit there. So in our case, if you are away for a period of time, it's okay. You haven't lost your link. You've just had time away. It's a bit like this. This planet's become a university, and it was a kindergarten. And for the people who haven't graduated from kindergarten, all that's going to happen is you go to a new kindergarten until you get it right, until you learn how to play in the sandpit with the children, learn how to share with the children, and work out why you're here. And then once you get those things right, you'll be back in no time at all. It's not that hard. Absolutely, absolutely. Guys, this has been such a an amazing episode. I really, really appreciate you guys coming through. And we've covered a lot so far, and I think we should leave them with that tidbit yeah. now, and then we'll do a part two and have you guys come back. Um, I mean, just amazing, amazing stuff. I love talking to you guys. Uh, we've talked a few times through some of the events that we've been in, you know, together in, but never one on one like this. And, and I appreciate both of you and the work you do. And it is, it, it really, if it, whoever's out there, if this, you didn't share this at least once to somebody else, that's the pay it forward method. Share it, like it, send it out for everybody to view because they need this information. And also, do yourself a favor. Get on board with OurAlienAncestries.net. Sign up. Get to the conferences. I think we're coming up on number 10 right now. So, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, also go to, to Forgotten Origins. Get yourself involved. What, look at what these gentlemen do. They do amazing work. They are on the cutting edge of what history actually was, not what other people are telling you. This is where it starts. And like I said, a man who knows where he comes from is not a man lost. So figure out where you come from. You've got to know. You've got to know. So, yeah. gentlemen, uh, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a privilege. I'll give you a moment or two to say your final thoughts. Well, final thoughts, God. <laughs> I would say primarily, um, if you're alive today, you're in seminal times. Um, what better time to be here mm, than now? There was an interesting um, video I saw some time about, about two children that were actually aliens talking about, and it's really interesting because I'm sure the aliens gave that information, and they were talking about the fact they were there for the event. And it was really interesting how it was done. It was about these aliens. Like, you were there for the event. It's like a universal thing that everyone knew about. And I've seen it up on YouTube once, and I cannot believe how close to the truth it actually was. And they actually, two, two girls, and they never opened their mouths because they talked telepathically because that's how things, that was first language. And it's interesting because <clears throat> they talk about the beings that were there, which were us, the fact that everybody joined in from all over the place and incarnated there. It was like it was an experiment where they were trying to find a place where we could find where all of us could learn to get on together. And this could then be a litmus for the whole of the, the cosmos where we can get on. And this was an experiment. They're trying to find a way to overcome warfare and, and disagreements with each other 
by finding a way where we could all live together. This was what was called the event. Now, the event had a use-by date, which was the date that was coming up they're talking about. So what I'm saying is that right now, all of us are incarnate at this moment. This is why we came here. All the way through, all the wars you're in when you killed people and did the most horrible things, and we all have, don't put your hand up and say you're a saint all the way through. You weren't. We did all these things. We fell on both sides, and this was a place where evil was given free reign and so was good, and they couldn't step in. Remember the rule was you couldn't come down and step in. That rule was made there because this was an experiment. I know it sounds like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, I don't know if the answer is 42 or not. I'll leave that aside. But that's what this was about. And whether you realise it or not, right now, all your other lives led up to this life right now. And like you said before, Rob, we're now in the cusp. And, yeah, we kicked the goal. We're there. Now we've got to make up a team. And I do know at the now at the moment I want to live the lifestyle I'm living now. I've got a vague idea of the numbers we have. It's not enough. It's not enough. We are going to continue like this, but we, I don't want to live hunter-gatherers and I don't want to – I want to keep what we've got, but we certainly need a certain number, a percentage that we need to get through around the world. And I do remember, and I'm going to close with this, before COVID, I was given a percentage by the elders of the number of people who were aware that were ready, and it was 2%. My understanding is the number we need for this to work the way we have now in comfort is 10%. I know we don't have 10. That's the bad news. But the good news is I know it's more than two. Mm-hmm. So we've got a couple of years, and I'm going to be – hesitant about going further than that but it's only a couple of years left numbers aren't right yet so like you said make this part of your conversation and i'm going to close with this when you hear people talking about covid interrupt them and say but it's not all bad that will break the conversation when they're whinging about because you know what covid does it drags people into a negative mindset this is what the, the ploy in this is so if it's on the media all the time, if that's all they talk about, if everyone becomes fearful and obsessive, then you will not evolve. This is their ploy. We told people, we were told they were going to release this. We told, we've been told for about five years they will release something to make you fearful. <clears throat> compared to the Spanish flu, it's nowhere near as dangerous and compared to nearly but but they've used it in a way that it's more dangerous than anything, even Ebola because it's permeated our psyche, and you have to clean yourself of that. That's what they've done to you, and they've done it deliberately, and that is why when their conversation starts, step in and say, I've got, I can see the, the silver lining in this cloud and bring them back, because if you live in that, if you live in that lifestyle where people see you and walk on the other side of the street, where someone tells me to move away from me, where in Australia we've had one COVID case, I think, in the last month, and people are so scared of COVID, you wouldn't believe it, mate, because I know in America and India and other places it's worse. It's just as bad in the media every day. Every day in the news starts with COVID, 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 then sport and weather. So, guys, you've got to get out of that mindset, and if you see people talking about them, interrupt them. Do it for them because it's going to be good for their soul. 
and give them hope and say to them, don't live. Don't talk about this all the time, man. You're calling it towards you. The more you're getting negative, you're running down your immune system. You're making yourself open to it. You're fearful of it. All those things, you're actually saying to the virus, I'm over here. Come and grab me. Don't do that. Say to that person, embrace this change because there's nothing else left. It's, it's so important. So, guys, remember, pay it forward. There's no such thing as coincidence. This is your time. You're here for a purpose. We need everybody to, to do their part. And if we can do that, we will ultimately find ourselves where we need to be to achieve this great, this great moment for our species, not just, you know, not just us. And it, it helps the planet, too. So, you know, I understand you guys and I appreciate that. And do your part. Pay it forward. That's all. That's all that's asked of you. That's it. But for that, guys, I want to thank everybody in the audience who came to watch. You guys are absolutely amazing. Uh, I want to thank Stephen and Evan Strong again. You guys, are, it, it, like I said, it's been an honor and a privilege to talk to you guys. And from all of us here to all of you out there, have a great evening or a great day if you're in the uh, on the Australian side of things. And we'll talk to you all soon. Have a thanks, Rob. Thank you so 